Well, it was July of 1961. The 38 members of the Green Bay Packers football team were gathered together for the first day of training camp. Previous season had ended with a heartbreaking defeat when the Packers squandered a late lead in the fourth quarter and lost the NFL championship to the Philadelphia Eagles. They hear the Eagles are playing in a big game again next week. Players had been thinking about this brutal loss for the entire offseason. Now finally, training camp had arrived. It was time to get back to work. Players were eager to advance their game to the next level to start working on all of the skills and all of the strategies that would help them win in the next season. But their head coach, Vince Lombardi, had a different idea. Walking into training camp that summer, Lombardi began to address the team as though they were just beginners. Gentlemen, he said, holding the pigskin in his hands, this is a football. Lombardi was coaching a a group of three dozen professionals who just months prior had come within minutes of winning the greatest prize their sport could offer, and yet he started from the very beginning. Lombardi's obsession with the basics continued throughout the training. Each player reviewed how to block and tackle. They opened up the playbook and they started from page one. And at one point along the way, one of the the wide receiver joked, "Uh, Coach, could you slow down a little? You're going too fast for us. Lombardi reportedly cracked a smile, but continued his obsession with the fundamentals. And his team quickly became the best in the league at the task that everyone else took for granted. Then six months later, the Green Bay Packers went on to beat the New York Giants 37-0 to to win the Super Bowl. You know, some of the greatest leaders of all time have understood the crucial importance of getting back to the basics and of mastering the fundamentals. As we open up the Word of God this morning, continue on in our study of 1 Corinthians, we're going to discover the Apostle Paul, like Vince Lombardi, was such a leader. If you've been tracking with us over the course of this past year, our sermon series in 1 Corinthians, you'll know that we have covered some very difficult, some very heavy subjects in this letter. This was a dysfunctional church in many ways, and Paul has been writing to them at a rather advanced level about all kinds of different issues, from the influence of Greek philosophy, to issues of gender role and gender identity, to issues of sexual morality, to issues of church discipline, to issues surrounding Christian liberty, to abuses around the Lord's table, difficult questions about spiritual gifts. We've covered a great deal of challenging material in this letter. And if you're starting to feel a bit overwhelmed by it all, I've got some good news for you this morning. Because today we are going to get back to the basics here in chapter 15. As the head head coach, Apostle Paul, walks into the Corinthian locker room and says to them, in effect, gentlemen, this is a football in the midst of all the controversy, in the midst of all the confusion and all the sin that was at work in this ancient church, Paul now goes back to the very basics with an introductory lesson on the Gospel. And over the next two Sundays, we're going to follow Paul's lead. We're going to be answering a very simple and fundamental question. What is the Gospel? This morning we're going to tackle the first two verses of this chapter where Paul gives six vital characteristics of the gospel. And then next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the next verses down to, down to verse 11 where Paul informs us of the content of the gospel. 
And so with God's help, that's where we're heading over the next two Sundays. We begin this morning with the characteristics of the Gospel. We continue next Lord's Day with the content of the Gospel. With that introduction, I'd invite you to open your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Listen carefully as I read the inspired and inerrant Word of God. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read verses 1-11. to Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace towards me was not in vain." On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. The Word of the Lord. The first two verses of this chapter, the Apostle Paul gives us in rapid succession six characteristics of the Gospel message. And the first of these characteristics is the fact that the Gospel is not something new. We see this characteristic in the opening sentence of the chapter where Paul turns to the Corinthians and says to them, now I would remind you brothers of the Gospel. The key word that I'd like you to notice in that opening phrase is the word remind. A small but important verb that demonstrates Paul is not telling these people something they don't already know. Like Vince Lombardi holding up that football in training camp, the Apostle Paul now takes the Gospel and he places it before the eyes of the Corinthians, inviting them to remember and reflect upon its true meaning. Now the reason why Paul does this will become very evident as we work our way through the rest of the chapter, discover that the Corinthians were in grave danger of losing the Gospel altogether. I don't want to get into all the fine details this morning, but under the influence of Greek and Platonic philosophy, uh, some of these Corinthians were embarrassed by the doctrine of the resurrection. They were therefore denying the truth of the resurrection or else reinterpreting it in a way that would appeal to the pagan Greek culture around them. Under pressure from the culture, the Gospel was being reinterpreted, reformulated by some of the believers in such a way that they could bypass all of the uncomfortable parts. And Paul is now going to drive home the point that when we start messing around with the Gospel, we're never improving it. We're only losing it. Corinthians foolishly thought that they could improve the Gospel by tweaking it, by changing it just a little bit, but in so doing, they were flirting with all-out disaster. And Paul, who has often taken a very strong and stern tone in this letter, now turns to these wayward believers and appeals to them gently as his brothers and sisters in Christ. I would remind you, brothers, of the Gospel. Though the Apostle Paul had planted the Corinthian church a number of years earlier, had probably been the first missionary, 
to come into this city with the message of Christ, he is going to be very clear in these verses, the Gospel is not something that he invented and dreamed up. Now that's important to realize because the exact same accusation is often brought against the Apostle Paul in our own day. Modern critics of the Christian faith, many of those belonging to the false religion of Islam, claim the Apostle Paul took the pristine moral teaching of Jesus as we find it in the Sermon on the Mount and that Paul transformed that teaching into a brand new religion that we now know as Christianity. And so there are many people today and some even within our own churches and seminaries who want to prioritize the teaching of Jesus that we find in the red letters and to marginalize everything else. It's written in black. And so they say we need to take Jesus very seriously, but we ought to take Paul with a grain of salt, consider his writings to be of secondary importance. Now it's hard to know for certain, but it certainly seems that a similar attitude was at work in the first century as certain members of this church were seeking to replace the gospel proclaimed by Paul with something that sounded similar, but wasn't exactly the same. And so the Apostle Paul goes to great lengths here in this chapter to show us the Gospel is not something new that he dreamed up one day. Rather, it is something that he himself had received from the Lord. Look at what Paul says to us there in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. In other words, the Gospel did not originate in the mind of Paul. This is a message that preceded him. In fact, this message that we call the Gospel can be traced throughout the entire Bible. It goes right back to the book of Genesis where God cursed the serpent and predicted the coming of a special child who would one day crush his head. We just talked about this verse an hour ago in Christian Foundations. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The Gospel was first announced to humanity in the Garden of Eden by the Creator Himself. But in fact, the Gospel is even older than this. We read in Revelation 13, verse 8, that Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And so friends, the Gospel did not originate in Paul's mind. It originated in the mind of our triune God who in eternity past foresaw that the human creation would fall into depravity and sin and who foreordained a Savior who would come into this world to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Paul has no interest in foisting his own clever ideas and philosophies upon the Corinthians. His only interest here is to remind them of what he himself had received from the Lord and what he had faithfully passed down to them when he planted the church. You know something, the same strategy of receiving the Gospel from one generation and then passing it down to the next generation is something that we find throughout Paul's epistles. The very last letter that Paul wrote before he was to be executed, Paul urges a young pastor named Timothy to follow the example that he had modeled. We read this verse at the very beginning of the service, 2 Timothy 2.13, Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Here we have the battle-scarred apostle at the very end of his earthly journey. And what is it that's weighing heavily upon his heart and his mind? It's the transmission of the Gospel to the next generation. 
And so Paul tells young Timothy, the gospel is a precious deposit that he must guard and protect at all costs. And a few verses later down the page, he tells us how this gospel is to be transmitted and passed down. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Transmission of the gospel was the most pressing concern in Paul's mind and by God's grace, Timothy, many other Christians have been faithful to do exactly what Paul instructed. Otherwise, you and I would not be sitting here in this room today. For 2,000 years now, the gospel has been passed down from one generation to the next. It is the same gospel that originated in the mind of our triune God. It is the gospel that was brought to fulfillment by our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the gospel that the apostles proclaimed at the expense of their own lives. You know, friends, in a relay race, it's essential. The baton is passed from one runner to the next. And Paul's greatest fear here in 1 Corinthians is that the Corinthians will drop the baton that this church will be disqualified from the race. Because it only takes one unfaithful generation for the Gospel to be corrupted and lost. And over the course of church history, countless churches have dropped the baton of the Gospel and have corrupted the Gospel and have therefore become totally irrelevant to the purpose of God. Probably shared this example with you before, but it's worth repeating again this morning. The YMCA was once an organization that was completely focused and centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe it or not, friends, the YMCA was originally founded in order to proclaim the same gospel message that I'm preaching to you this morning. But today the YMCA is little more than a fitness club where people go to swim, to lift weights, and to do yoga. How on earth did this happen? It's very simple. Somewhere along the line, the Gospel was tweaked a little. The Gospel was changed a little by men and women who thought that they needed to make that message more appealing, more relevant for the changing culture around them. But in their efforts to try and improve the Gospel, they ended up losing the Gospel. And tragically, the same thing could be said of countless Christian organizations and churches, seminaries, parachurch ministries, organizations that were once on fire for the glory of Christ, but are now stone cold and dead. This past summer, Leslie and I traveled to Boston for vacation and I was eager to visit some historical sites related to the evangelical uh, Puritans. But in spite of my interest in seeing some of these things, I was deeply saddened by my visit to two churches in Northampton and Stockbridge that were pastored by Jonathan Edwards. Probably the greatest mind, the greatest theologian that America has ever produced. Jonathan Edwards was a faithful theologian. He was a faithful minister of the Word for his entire life. But today if you visit those churches that he once pastored, you will find the rainbow flag flying high and proud. And I looked at those churches and I asked myself, how does something like that happen to a church that was once firm and steadfast in the Gospel? Someone dropped the baton. Someone traded the birthright of the Gospel for a worthless bowl of soup and as a result, the Holy Spirit left the building and the lamp was extinguished. It only takes one generation for the precious deposit of the Gospel to be lost. I wonder, friends, if our Lord delays His coming for another 50 years and I come back to Rosedale Baptist Church 
50 years from now when I'm, when I'm an old man, what I'm going to find in this place? Will we be faithful with the Gospel? Or will we trade it in for something else? The church in ancient Corinth is standing at the crossroads. Paul knows precisely what's at stake here. And so in chapter 15, he rearticulates what he's been teaching throughout this entire book. You know, through all of the doctrinal controversy we've been dealing with in this letter, we can be tempted to lose sight of the main thing that Paul has been pounding on, and that is the message of the Gospel and the implications of the Gospel for our lives. And although it's absolutely true, the clearest articulation of the Gospel comes at the end of the book here in chapter 15. We can trace the Gospel thread through the entire letter. And I'd encourage you to do just that as we enter now into the home stretch of this sermon series. Go back this week in your devotional time. Reread the book of 1 Corinthians and pay very close attention to what you learn about the Gospel. And in order to give you a head start, let me mention a few highlights by way of review. Back in chapter 1, Paul reminds the Corinthians their salvation did not begin with his preaching and teaching ministry. Rather, it began with the sovereign call and purpose of God. For it is God who does the choosing, Paul tells them again and again. And if we end up choosing Him, it is only because He first chose us. For as Paul tells us in chapter 2, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because he cannot accept them. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's why we fallen human beings are in desperate need of God's sovereign grace to reach down, to touch us, to open our sin-blinded eyes. Because we would never in a million years choose Him if He didn't first choose us. We learn in the first two chapters of this epistle, the Gospel is not a message that appeals to the wisdom of this world because it is foolishness to those who are perishing. And so friends, if you want a religion and if you want a message that will make you popular, that will win you the applause of the world, you best look somewhere else because you're not going to find it in the Gospel. Far from earning you the respect and the applause of the world, the Gospel will earn you the reproach of the world. And as we preach the Gospel in all of its fullness, it will be the stench of death to those who are perishing in sin. People will hate you. People will despise you if you believe and preach the Gospel. But on the other hand, the Gospel will be the aroma of life to those God has chosen and called. And that is a wonderful motivation to continue to persevere in proclaiming the Gospel. In the opening chapters of this letter, Paul speaks about the folly and the power of the Gospel. But as we get into the middle part of the letter, he takes the Corinthians to task for their tolerance of wickedness in the church, their unwillingness to exercise discipline on those who refuse to repent. Immorality had a foothold in Corinth, but in the middle of the mess, we see the power of the Gospel to rescue and to deliver. One of my favorite parts in the entire book is in the middle of chapter 6 where Paul says this, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Now comes the good part. But you were washed. You were sanctified. 
You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. What a beautiful reminder, brothers and sisters, the power of the Gospel to transform our lives from the inside out. For Paul tells us in this letter, no one is too bad for the Gospel and no one is too good for the Gospel. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No matter how good of a life you've tried to live through your own moral self-effort, no matter how bad of a life you've lived through your own thoughtlessness and carelessness, there is not a single person in this room today who has met God's righteous standard through our own self-effort. And because of that, every single one of us, every human being who has ever walked on this planet stands guilty and condemned in the eyes of a holy God. We are all guilty. We are all broken. We are all vile sinners who deserve the wrath of God. But the good news of the Gospel is that God delights to save lost sinners like you and like me. Such were some of you, Paul says, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Gospel rescues us from the deadly consequences of sin, from all of the worthless idols that we once looked for to for satisfaction. But Paul continues the argument here in the letter and we learn that the Gospel not only saves us, it also trains us to live holy lives that will be pleasing to the Lord. Here in 1 Corinthians, we learn the Gospel sets us free and God expects us to use our freedom in a way that will build others up and not in a way that will cause them to stumble and fall into sin. A few chapters later, Paul teaches us how the Gospel is pictured in the Lord's table and in the elements of bread and wine that represent the body and the blood of Christ. And then finally, in chapters 12 to 14, we see how the gospel calls us into community, how the gospel equips us for a life of fruitful service within the local church as we use our spiritual gifts to build one another up and to glorify God. That's just a very brief whirlwind tour through the gospel in 1 Corinthians, and it shows us, in spite of all of the controversy, all of the hard teaching we've covered in this epistle, Paul has never lost sight of the gospel. The Gospel has been skillfully woven throughout the entire letter and we see how every gift and every grace finds its ultimate origin in this precious deposit from God. And so friends, if you walk away from this study in a few weeks thinking that Paul's main point in the book of 1 Corinthians was to tell us to stop sinning and to try hard to be better people, you've missed the point. From the first chapter to the last chapter, Paul has been motivating the wayward church not on the basis of hard work and self-effort, but rather on the basis of the Gospel. He's been showing us it is only through the power of the Gospel that we can live holy lives that will honor the Lord and accomplish His purposes on earth. Now as we come to the concluding part of the letter, Paul takes the Gospel. He puts it right in front of our face because if we get this one thing wrong, we're going to get everything else wrong. And all of Paul's inspired teaching will be in vain. Brothers and sisters, every generation of Christians from the first century until our modern 21st century has faced tremendous pressure that tempts us to tweak and to change the Gospel thinking that we can somehow make it more relevant and appealing to the culture around us. Corinthians foolishly tried to do this by denying the resurrection. Perhaps we do it today in other ways that are just as harmful. 
In this modern age of moral relativity, there's an ethos in Western society that says, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Theology according to Sheryl Crow. We live in a world today where just about anything and everything goes. And so the temptation is strong in our culture not to talk about parts of the Gospel that will rub people the wrong way. You know, there was a time not all that long ago when pastors were not afraid to say the word sin from the pulpit. To say the word hell. Today we don't hear those two words very much in our churches. At one time, the Gospel was presented as as God's ordained means to save us from sin and to produce holiness in our lives. Now the Gospel is very often produced as a good way to be happy and to live a fulfilling life. And so instead of warning lost people about the very real danger of an eternal hell and calling them to repent of their sin, we instead tell them all the many ways that Christianity will make their lives better. Come to Jesus, you won't be lonely anymore. Come to Jesus, you won't be sick anymore. Come to Jesus, you won't be poor anymore. Come to Jesus, He'll fix your depression and your mental illness. Come to Jesus, He'll help you to be a nicer and a more positive person. In this effort to appeal to non-Christians around us, we have constructed a new version of the Gospel that appeals to surface level needs but doesn't get very very deeper than that so that the non-Christian never hears they are a sinner in need of salvation. The Gospel of Paul and the Apostles is being replaced in our own day by an alternative message that is either partially true or else totally false. We have the false Gospel of self-esteem and the Gospel of self-improvement, the Gospel of health, the Gospel of prosperity. Just name whatever you want. Claim it in Jesus' name. It will be yours, we're told, by the false prophets on television. And so we have churches today that are filled to capacity each and every Sunday with men and women who think that they're fine, that they're on their way to heaven, when in fact they have embraced a counterfeit gospel and are on their way to hell. Under the continual pressure of our culture, we have repackaged the gospel for a consumer mentality, but there are also other challenges we face. For in a society that is increasingly pluralistic and secular, it is very tempting to turn the gospel into some form of social activism to conclude that we have fulfilled the Christian mandate whenever we engage in humanitarian work and social justice. Then, of course, there's a temptation to sell out to the relativists to say that Jesus is not the only way for a person to get to heaven, but that he's just one way among many. And so we have liberal churches in every city of our land that say that a person can go to heaven as long as they're sincere in what they believe, as long as they try their best to be a good person and to obey the golden rule. It's a false gospel. False gospels abound, brothers and sisters. We will always be tempted by these false gospels. We will always be tempted to take the path of least resistance and to tweak and to change the gospel to make it more appealing and to make our lives more comfortable by minimizing resistance and hostility and persecution. But never forget, whenever we change the gospel, we never end up improving it. We only end up losing it. That was true back in ancient Corinth. It is true in 21st century North America. That is why we must get back to the basics. We must be reminded of the Gospel. For this is not a message that evolves with the passing of time. 
And ultimately, friends, we who believe in the gospel will not find ourselves on the wrong side of history. The prophet Isaiah said long ago, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Gospel is an unchanging message uh, that we need to be reminded of over and over again. Secondly, we learn here in our text, the gospel is a message that needs to be preached. Verse 1, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. I've already mentioned this morning how there are many false versions of the gospel. One of the ways that we often get, get off track in this way is to confuse the gospel message with the effects that the gospel produces in our lives through the power of the Spirit. I think many Christian people get confused on this point and think that the gospel is really something that we do when in fact the New Testament says the gospel is something that we preach. Now, of course, as Christian men and women, we ought to be people who follow the golden rule. We ought to be people who seek the good of our neighbor. We ought to be people who strive for justice and righteousness in the world. We ought to be people who live exemplary lives. But as important as all of those things truly are, none of those things is the gospel. Because according to the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, the gospel is not a lifestyle to be lived. It is a message to be preached. Ligon Duncan, who's a Presbyterian pastor in the States and organizer of the upcoming uh, T4G conference, said something on Facebook a few weeks ago that caught my attention. Here's what he wrote. Sometimes you hear Christian leaders say, be the gospel. But you can't be the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. The work of Christ on the cross is the gospel. God is the gospel. You are not the gospel. And so the only way to convey the gospel is with words because we're telling about what God has done. The gospel is not something we do. It is something that God did. End quote. Very helpful quotation, I think. It cuts through a lot of the confusion that shrouds the gospel in so many of our churches. And although the gospel ought to make us into nicer people, the gospel is not ultimately about being nice. The world is full of nice people who don't believe in Jesus. In some cases, nice people who live better lives than us Christians. God's common grace operates in our world in such a way all people still reflect the image of God even though they might not even believe in a God or believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And so while some people think that they preach the gospel when they've shoveled snow out of their neighbor's driveway or when they've gone and served soup to the homeless or when they've worked with Habitat for Humanity, none of these things are the gospel. They may indeed be good works that result from the gospel, but they are not the gospel. Popular quotation often thrown around in Christian circles falsely attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, and here's how it goes. Preach the gospel at all times and use words when necessary. Heard that quotation many times. I'm sure many of you have heard that quotation. It's often stated with the very best of intentions by genuine Christians. To tell you the truth, I cringe every time I hear it. Because biblically speaking, the gospel is not something that can be preached without opening your your mouth and using words. You may be the best neighbor on your street. You may be the citizen of the year. But if you don't open your mouth and tell people about Christ, you haven't shared the gospel. 
You may serve soup every week at the local rescue mission, but if you don't talk about the problem of sin and our need for salvation, you have not, not preached the Gospel. You may work long and hard for social justice. You may give your time and your money to help end, end human trafficking. But if you have not talked about Christ's power to deliver us from the captivity to sin, you have not preached the Gospel. Friends, I don't want you to get the wrong idea here from what I've just said that I think all we need to do as Christians is to talk a lot about Jesus and never to do good works in His name. For the Bible is crystal clear in Ephesians. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so if you're serving your neighbors, if you're helping the homeless, if you're working for justice as an overflow of the Gospel and your love for Christ, I want to affirm you in that 100%. I would challenge you, keep moving forward in those things. Put your faith into action, for we know and we believe what James wrote, that faith without works is dead. My only point here, and I'm convinced it's a biblical point, none of these things constitute the Gospel because the Gospel is not something we do it is something we preach. And that's why Paul defines the Gospel here in our text as a message to be preached. It's why he refers to it earlier in the letter as the Word of the Cross. It's why when you turn to the book of Romans chapter 10, he says, how will they call on Him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the Gospel. So then faith comes by hearing. And hearing by what? By the Word of Christ. Christian Gospel is not a lifestyle to be lived. It is a, it is a message to be preached. The Word of Christ Jesus crucified for sinners, raised to life on the third day, ascended to the Father's right hand, coming again to judge the living and the dead. And the good news this morning is that you don't need to be an apostle or a pastor to preach the Gospel. All you need is the courage to open up your mouth and to tell others about the Lord Jesus. He is the bondage breaker who saves from sin the God who will grant peace to all who come to Him in faith. The Gospel is a message to be preached and so let us preach it confidently in the knowledge that God will be faithful to use the Gospel to save lost men and women. And once we have preached the Gospel, let us be faithful to live lives that reinforce the truth of the Gospel so that men will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Well, Paul tells us the Gospel is an unchanging message. It is a message to be preached. Thirdly, Paul tells us the Gospel is a message to be received. Verse 1, I would remind you, brothers, of the Gospel I preached to you, which you received. Well, it's absolutely true that God is always glorified through the preaching of the Gospel, whether it be the fragrance of death or the aroma of life. It is also true men and women will only be saved by the grace of God as they respond to the message we proclaim. It is a message that needs to be received. And in order to receive the Gospel, a non-Christian first needs to understand the content of the message, which is why we need to open up our mouths and to speak. You know something, the Gospel is more than mere knowledge, for mere knowledge will not save. Even Satan and the demons have a knowledge of the Gospel. Believe it or not, I think Satan is a better theologian than I am. 
Satan has an understanding of Jesus Christ and the Gospel that is equivalent to anything you'll hear me say from this pulpit. Satan knows the Apostles' Creed by heart. Satan agrees with every single point of doctrine in the Creed, but yet he hates God and is on his way to hell. And this simply goes to show us that while accurate knowledge of the Gospel is necessary for salvation, knowledge alone is not sufficient to save. Going every week to Sunday school, memorizing Bible verses is a wonderful thing to do. Coming to church every week to listen to Bible teaching and sermon is very important. But you can memorize verses and you can read your Bible and you can listen to sermons from now till the day you die. But if you don't respond to the truth revealed in the Bible, you will not be saved. It is not accurate information about Christ that saves us. It is faith in Christ that saves us. Ephesians 2, for by grace are you saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. Receiving the Gospel goes beyond church attendance. It goes beyond Bible reading. To receive the Gospel means to believe the Gospel. It means casting yourself on the grace and mercy of Christ, trusting in Him alone to save you from sin. For we read in John's Gospel, as many as received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. And so if you're here this morning and you have never responded to the Gospel message by casting yourself fully upon the mercy of God, by trusting in Jesus Christ alone to save you, I would urge you not to leave this place this morning until you do business with God. For How will we escape, the author to the Hebrews says, if we neglect so great salvation. Fourth in his list of attributes is the fact that the Gospel gives us a firm place to stand. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the Gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand. You know, in a culture like ours that is absolutely plagued by relativism, by anxiety, by uncertainty, I am so thankful as a Christian believer I have a firm foundation upon which to plant my feet. I am so grateful as a Christian that my house is built on a foundation that will never be moved no matter what happens to me in this life. You know, like everyone else in this room today, like everyone in our world, I have lots of questions and concern about where we're heading and about what the future holds. Deeply concerned about current events in our country. I'm deeply concerned about political happenings throughout our world. You know, one thing that never concerns me is whether God is going to up and change His mind one day. It's been a few nights in my life where I've tossed and turned because of some anxious thought in my head. There's never been a single night when I have lost sleep wondering whether God would change His mind or go back on His Word. How comforting to know, brothers and sisters, in a constantly changing world like ours, we serve a God who never changes. He's the God who's the same yesterday, today. And He'll be the same tomorrow. The promises my God has made to me in His Word are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so you can ridicule me if you wish. Tell me I'm an old-fashioned bigot. Throw me in prison. Find me. Do whatever you want. One thing you can never do is to alter the covenant of grace that my God has made with me. Because I know beyond a shadow of the doubt the Gospel is true. Jesus is the only Savior. 
not hedging my bets on salvation. I believe the Word of God is true. I believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. I believe the testimony of the apostles. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Be encouraged, Christians. In Jesus Christ and the Gospel, we have a firm place to stand. And by His grace, He will enable us to stand on that solid ground for as many days as He is pleased to allow us to breathe His air and to walk upon His earth. As men and women who are deeply privileged to stand firmly and confidently on the Gospel, we have a solemn responsibility to stand up for the Gospel and to defend the Gospel from attack. This is part of what Paul is talking about in taking a stand on the Gospel. It's what we're instructed to do in the little epistle of Jude where the author instructs us to earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You know what my job is as a pastor? To preach the Gospel. To defend the Gospel for the sake of Christ's church. That's what I'm striving to do this morning in this sermon. That's what I strive to do in every sermon that I preach. The truth is, we share this responsibility together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We all need to know the Word of God so intimately, so thoroughly, we'll be able to immediately detect and reject any Gospel that smells a little funny. Any Gospel that is false. Any Gospel that is partial. Any Gospel that is incomplete. And we will, by God's grace, do what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 10 to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, never be ashamed of the Gospel. Never be ashamed. Never be afraid to take a bold, uncompromising stand upon the Gospel. Never be hesitant to refuse to move from the Gospel if it would be compromised in any way. May God give us the courage and the wisdom in our generation to earnestly contend for the Gospel once for all delivered to the saints. We come then to the fifth characteristic of the Gospel. Its ability to save and to make us holy. You'll notice in verse 2 of our text, Paul does not speak about salvation in the past tense, but rather he speaks about salvation in the present continuous tense. The Gospel in which you stand, by which you are being saved. No, as evangelicals, we're accustomed to speaking about the Gospel and salvation in the past tense, and there's nothing wrong with that. But we need to recognize the Bible speaks about salvation in three tenses. It speaks about about the past tense of salvation, the present tense of salvation, and the future tense of salvation. When we're talking about salvation in the past tense, we're talking about the doctrine of justification. That moment when we place our trust in Jesus Christ and when God in His grace declares us to be innocent on the basis of Christ's merit and righteousness. That's a wonderful, reassuring truth. It reminds us God's salvation can never be earned, nor can it be forfeited. Every genuine believer justified by grace alone through faith will indeed persevere in the faith and reach the finish line. But important as it is to speak about salvation in the past tense, the Bible speaks about salvation as an ongoing present reality in our lives. And when God speaks about the Gospel saving us in verse 2, He's not talking about the doctrine of justification, but the doctrine of sanctification. He's talking here about the truth that God's Holy Spirit is at work in our lives making us more and more like our Lord Jesus. 
Justification is a one-time declaration in the courtroom of God. Sanctification is an ongoing process of growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. This ongoing process of being made holy will one day be complete when we meet Christ and stand before Him at His judgment throne. By the way, that's the future tense of salvation. The great day when we meet the Lord, when our sin nature will be eradicated, when we will receive our new and glorified bodies. In Scripture, salvation is past, is present, is future. But here in verse 2, Paul focuses on the present tense of salvation and he is thereby emphasizing the power of the Gospel to sanctify us and to make us holy. You know, I think many of us evangelicals have been trained to think that the Gospel message is more important for non-Christians than it is for Christians. But I want to suggest to you this morning, that way of thinking is way off target. The truth is, we Christians need the Gospel every bit as much as non-Christians, not because we need to get saved over and over again, but because we need to grow in holiness and righteousness. And if you want to grow in holiness and righteousness, the best way to do it is to preach the Gospel to yourself each and every day before you go out and preach it to others. Failure to keep the Gospel front and center in our lives and churches is perilous indeed. It leads to all kinds of problems can lead, for example, to a legalistic mindset where we believe that we're justified by God's grace and then that we're sanctified by our own merit and self-effort. But the truth is that we grow in, in Christ the same way that we receive Christ, by grace and grace alone. Our lives as Christians should be lived out of the overflow of love for Christ. And the only way that that is going to happen is if our minds are continually saturated with the Gospel. It's also true in our fight against sin. The very best way to overcome sinful habits in your life is not through the fear of being exposed and caught, but rather by being so captured by the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ that you are no longer enticed by these lesser idols that promise what they can never deliver. Legalism can only produce a superficial facade of holiness like it did in the Pharisees, but only the Gospel can produce the kind of true holiness that is pleasing to God. Not a change of behavior that is only skin deep, but a change of behavior that comes from the inside out, that comes from a heart that's been transformed by grace. Perhaps the best and clearest place we can find this teaching in Paul's writing is Titus 2, where we read the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And so, my friends, if it is your desire to grow in holiness and Christ-likeness, if it is your desire to overcome patterns of sin and ungodliness in your life, make sure that you are preaching the Gospel to yourself at least as much as you're preaching it to others. Final characteristic of the Gospel we find here in Paul's list is the fact that the Gospel enables every true believer to persevere in the race of faith, not to drop out of that race before reaching the finish line. The doctrine of perseverance or the perseverance of the saints as we sometimes call it is very clearly found in the conditional clause of verse 2. The Gospel by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. Don't have time this morning to develop the doctrine of perseverance at any length. I would remind you we covered this subject in great detail a few short months ago when we looked at chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. And you'll recall in those verses that Paul said this, 
Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Although we affirm here at Rosedale Baptist Church the doctrine of eternal security, we believe that a true Christian believer can never lose his or her salvation. We also recognize with the Apostle Paul, some people who appear to be saved on the outside are not really saved at all. And sadly, some who have prayed the so-called sinner's prayer, who have appeared to show enthusiasm for Christ, who have made a verbal profession of faith to the church family, who have been baptized in water, were never truly converted, but were only going through the motions of Christianity. And these men and women are just like the seed in Jesus' parable that fell on shallow and rocky ground. And the Lord has said what is true. You shall know them by their fruits. As far as I'm concerned, the Bible is crystal clear. Those who truly have the Holy Spirit living within them will continue to run all the way to the finish line. Now that doesn't mean that there won't be some stumbling and bumbling along the way, but if a person is truly converted, if a person is truly indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, that person will continue in the faith and will not drop out of the race. And so the author to the Hebrews reminds us, take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitful deceitfulness of sin. And here's the key part. For we have come to share in Christ if, if, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It's a conditional statement. And you've got to deal with that. You've got to fit that into your theology. Six characteristics of the Gospel here, brothers and sisters. Lord willing, next Sunday, We'll continue on in the same text and we'll cover the content of the Gospel down to verse 11. Lord bless.